Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we get to hear from a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. It is one of the most identifiable guitarists ever, James Williamson from The Stooges. So I think everybody knows this story. Uh, Obviously The Stooges started out with Ron Ashton on guitar. They put out those first two albums, classics. Then the third album comes on and Iggy gets James in the band to play guitar. And that album, Raw Power, is a classic. That's why you're listening to Search and Destroy right now. Well, after that, I mean, Iggy especially, but also James and the rest of the band were just totally disheveled, overcome with drugs, not in a good place. They scrounged around looking for record contracts, took on what little they could, put out some new music. The album Kill City, which I actually love, but is not considered like a, you know, it's kind of almost more outtakes or bootlegs. Anyway, James tries to keep it going for a while there with Iggy, but it just doesn't work out. And eventually, James, get this, becomes a major player in Silicon Valley. He's this bigwig with Sony. A guy who starts out as a drug-addled punk in Detroit becomes a major player in the tech world. Crazy. Well, after all of that, and as we know, Ron Ashton eventually passes away, And James takes over as the guitarist in the Stooges for a while. And then he leaves that after a while, too. He's more comfortable doing his own thing. And uh, he's put out a bunch of solo albums that are really, really good. In fact, last year, he and vocalist Dennis Tech put out an album called Two to One that you guys probably saw my list. It's one of my favorite albums of the last couple of years. I love this album. And so he comes on and talks about that. And then we get deep into the weeds on some of these... If you're an Iggy fan, you're going to love some of the color that you get to songs and albums. Uh, People, he's actually not that big of a Bowie fan. So that's interesting to hear a new perspective. And uh, anyway, James, a great guy. I I should say, I don't know what the deal was. My microphone wasn't working and I I didn't know that at the time. You can still hear everything. It's just not quite as clear as it would normally be. But anyway... Go check out, if you got like a gift card for Christmas, go take it to buy Two to One because Two to One is fantastic. Uh, James called me from his home in Silicon Valley. Okay, so let's talk about Two to One. This is, um, I really love this album and I, I've heard of Radio Birdman, but I don't know a ton about them. So Dennis Tech from that band, he's an old Stooges fan or something, right? You two go way back. And so is that what sparked the, the idea to create this album right now? Actually, I only first met Dennis in 2011 mm-hmm. because he had been invited to play at uh, Ron Ashton's memorial show in Ann Arbor. And uh, he, he had been friends with Ron and had played in, in a couple little efforts with him. And, and so he knew all of the original Stooges songs so he, he was invited to, to play on those songs. And previous to that, I'd never heard of Radio Birdman either. <laughs> I kind of had my own blinders on and I, uh-huh. I really didn't, it didn't register with me. And, 
And Dennis is, a, is two or three years younger than us and even a little younger, younger than me. And, and that makes him even younger to Iggy and Ron, those guys. So he was really not exactly, you know, a contemporary of theirs. And it was only after he moved to uh, Australia that he took <clears throat> some of the songs that, uh, from the Stooges and things that he'd learned how to play and took that over and started a, his own band, Radio Birdman. And, uh, and so there, there's that connection. Mm. So after I had met him, uh, we found out that we both spent a lot of time on the Big Island of Hawaii. You know, we, you know, we kind of hooked up that way, you know, so kind of became friends. I, I had him play, he sings for one thing, so I had him play and sing on an album I did a few years back called Acoustic K.O. I had been doing quite a few guest sessions for Cleopatra Records. I, I did a Mitch Ryder, Devil with a Blue Dress, and Cherry Curry thing, and so on. So Matt Green from, from Cleopatra suggested, you know, why don't you and Dennis Tech do an electric album with, of original tunes? So it was really their idea. But we, you know, we kicked it around, thought, you know, why not? And so that's where we are. It's so good, and the first single uh, is Jetpack Nightmare.
when you got, I mean, are you, is he back in Australia? How are you two even writing or collaborating on this stuff? Just sending he, files to each other? Yeah, he, well, he's in Hawaii. Now. Oh, he is now, okay. And, yeah, and so, um, yeah, we, we, um, we did a little mixture of different things. So we, we, when we decided to do it, of course, we, we knew we were gonna be, uh, be doing 10 or 11 songs or more. And so we kind of split up the, the duties. Um, in, in, the, in my case, I never write lyrics. I mean, I have, I have, but they're not generally very good. And so, you know, even from the beginning, Iggy wrote the lyrics, I wrote the music. And so I simply do that now and don't even pretend to do lyrics. So I got some guys that I had written with in the past, um, Paul Nelson Kimball, uh, helped me out on Jetpack Nightmare, and then and then also on Stable, and then Frank Myers helped me out. Meyer helped me out on uh, Take a Look Around. Take a look around at these tired faces. Take a look around at the damage done. Take a look around at the lives wasted. Take a look around Take a look around The world is upside down This life is dangerous It's not just a game for us Take a look around at these tired faces. Take a look around at the damage done. Take a look around at the lives wasted. Take a look around. Take a look around. The world is upside down. And then, and then Dennis um, helped out on a couple of the other ones. So yeah, we, we did it that way. He does all his own music and lyrics. So those, okay. are, those are all his, his side of the equation. Under normal circumstances, what would be the fate of an album like this? Would you guys be going on a tour? Would you, um, like, what, what was the, what's the plan, you know? Well, you know what? At this time, at this point, there is no plan. I mean, mm. I don't know when or if, you know, live shows are, are going to be happening anymore. Yeah. You know, it's a, a very indeterminate thing. And um, I think most bands would that that tour and stuff would would. Yes. In fact, they uh, that was one of the advantages we had with this record was we weren't really necessarily going to tour it anyway. And so, I mean, it's a project. And so yeah. those bands were holding their records back thinking that they would get to tour them. And so we, ours got to the front of the line yeah. and it was lucky for us because this record wasn't actually finished uh, mixing until the very end of February. Mm. And, and then it, we were to master it in, in March and then the shutdown hit. So we were fortunate to get someone who was still working 
you know, during the shutdown to master it and yeah. could go ahead and, and uh, get it out. Well, it's, uh, it's excellent. And it's so good. I mean, your style is so, your guitar style is so, it's so signature and influential. And I wanted to ask you about that specifically because I'm curious, there's that story, whether it's apocryphal or not, that before getting the call to come back to the Stooges when Ron died, you hadn't picked up a guitar in like 25 years. When you do that, when, I mean, this, do you, is the sound that comes from James Williamson, this raunchy, gnarly, messy sound that's so beautiful, is that what's coming out naturally? Or do you feel like a, I don't know, like a certain responsibility to continue to sort of play in that style? Does that make sense? You know, I decided on this record, of course, um, both of us had our part of the, the, the goal was to just make a good old fashioned you know, guitar album. And, and so I wasn't trying to be pretentious in any way. So that's the way I sound. Yeah, um, that's you. The, it, luckily for me, people, you know, if you like me, the way I played, then, then you like that style. And if you don't, yeah. you don't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's so good. When I was getting ready to talk to you, I found a quote from Johnny Marr, um, who's, a, as you know, a big fan of yours. And he says, how... You sound how you imagine Darth Vader would sound if Darth Vader played guitar in a band. And I thought, I thought that's such a great description of James's style, you know? Well, I love it. yeah, Johnny's a nice guy, too. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, he's one of the greatest guitarists of all time, too. That's got to feel good, knowing that you've influenced people like him to be yeah. as great as they are, you know? Very different style, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to go one back, too. I, I normally start from the beginning of people's careers, but I want to talk about the recent stuff because it's so interesting. Let's talk about Relicked for a minute. Because, so for anyone who doesn't know, that's an album that came out a few years ago where you were putting together, you were, I guess, trying to re-record the songs that the Stooges, you and Iggy, basically, had started making after Raw Power that didn't come to light. And so, and instead of, I think Iggy didn't, want to participate or chose not to sing. So you got a bunch of other people to come in and sing on this record. And it is fantastic. And I'm just wondering, you know, first of all, why didn't Nikki participate? And were you as happy as I am about the outcome of that album, the way it turned out? Hear it coming, hear it coming, hear it coming, head on, babe.
Yeah, well, you know, my whole goal with that record was to take all these bootlegs that had been made and to actually record them properly. Yeah. And um, Iggy and I had discussed doing this when the Stooges were still together and uh, the re reunited Stooges. And, you know, the problem with it, with him singing them was that he, his voice, he, he couldn't hit those high notes anymore mm -hmm. like, like you need to do on that record. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, it was always going to be one of those things where it was like, well, you know, too bad he didn't do it back in the day, but you know, it's just, you know, kind of so, so. And, yeah. and so, so we recorded uh, Ready to Die and that was the record we made with the, I made with the Reunited Stooges. And once we had sort of decided to sort of call it quits after Scotty Ashton died, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to make this record. And so I went ahead and, and that was what my idea was to bring in outside singers. And because there, there's so many of those, all of those singers actually are fans. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to do it justice, you know, themselves. Mm -hmm. So it was really a fun project. I mean, we had a good time making it. I, I was very happy with how it came out. And, uh, you know, I yeah. have a lot of listen to it. It's, it's really a, a great record. I love it. I especially love, I didn't know who Lisa Kikala was, but she blows me away. On her version of I Gotta Write, powerful things I've ever heard. I oh, love yeah. it. She's, she is badass. Yes. And, you know, the bell rays, man. She, she, check them out. You know, she's just, she brings it on everything. Yes. You two put out a single, I think, um, a few years ago too, called I Love My Tutu.
so good. Man, that girl can sing. I I need to look deeper into her because I really, really love that album. It sounds, James, a little bit like you're just kind of itching to make Stones-type music with whoever will make it with you, whether it's Dennis or, you know, Lisa and her ilk, Allison Mosshart and Jello Biafra, whoever's going to come and sing on Relicked. Is that, I mean, you just kind of, are you still jonesing to kind of get back to that style? You know, that that's my style. So I, yeah. I just, you know, when, when I'm going to make a record, you know, that's kind of what you get. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I've had a good time making those records. I've done quite a few since, since the Re- Reunited Stooges folded. And yeah. uh, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm pretty satiated. <laughs> okay. Yeah, what's next? Are you and Dennis going to contri- uh, collaborate on a new one? What do you think you'll do? I, you know, it's too early to say. We're mm-hmm. we're still doing interviews on this one, you know. So yeah. it's kind of still still rolling out. So it'll okay. it'll be a while before I'm even contemplating such a thing. Okay, okay. Well, I'm dying to find out. Is it true that when you got asked to come back to the Stooges, you hadn't touched the guitar in 25 years? It was more than that. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, I, I hadn't, uh, I really, you know, was very busy doing my, my, uh, tech career. So I, I wasn't when, when, uh, when I first got a call and was asked, I was, I said no, because mm-hmm. I wasn't really sure I could do it. Number one. And I was fat, dumb and happy, you know, doing what I was doing, but you know, things as they unfolded it turned out to be serendipity and it was mm-hmm. it turned out to be a good time yeah. to do it and I um, I had plenty of time we had quite a few months before our first gig so um, I was able to woodshed a lot and, and yeah. uh, could back up yeah it's I'm, I've become friendly with Kevin Armstrong who is Iggy's current guitarist and um he had mentioned that you two had never even met before, which I thought was really interesting. When that came to an end, I mean, what what's the, why not continue backing up Iggy? It doesn't, I know the Stooges aren't really a thing anymore because it's just the two of you, but would you not have wanted to continue to just play guitar alongside Iggy Pop? Yeah, not really. I mean, I, uh, I think, you know, we had played together for about, all together, um, about 10 years. And mm-hmm. so I think we kind of had done what we what we needed to do, and and I I was always in favor of a band, not mm-hmm. not being the guitar player for Iggy Pop. Mm-hmm. And so um, when Scotty died, the the kind of the last vestiges of the Stooges were over, as far mm-hmm. as I was concerned. You know, just having two Stooges is is to me is. I can't stand it when these bands get like all all the members are new members and they got mm-hmm. one guy and they call it the band. So that's kind of where that was. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, do you tell me the? Uh, you know, there's a lot of stories about how crazy life was in the Stooges, especially for Iggy around the raw power time. What uh, what's the craziest thing you witnessed? or experienced? Is that a story you're willing to share? Um, well, no, I never talk out of school. Oh. <laughs> okay. Not even yeah. about your own life, about yourself? Especially back in the day, that was a pretty uh, 
you know, hand to mouth experience. We, mm-hmm. we were just barely getting around and uh, our, you know, our expenses were relatively high because we didn't go in a van and go play mm-hmm. shows. We were mostly only liked on the coasts and then a couple of towns in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so we'd always be flying to gigs and stuff like that. And so it, it got pretty, pretty hard to, to make the payroll, if you will. And mm-hmm. so it was, it, was a, it was an interesting time for sure. I bet. Was, um, I mean, do, can we talk about drugs for a second? I mean, you, you know, I believe you had kind of a, a heroin problem there for a while. What, what was that like? How long did that last? How did you well, kick that, it? That's, that's, that's actually a misconception. Oh, is uh, it really? Interesting. Yeah, you know, there, there was, certainly we were using heroin, but not, mm-hmm. I don't think, I think Iggy's the only one that got strung out per se, uh, and that was early. That was before actually we even went to England. And so he, that's when he had to kick, kick heroin. Largely after that, we couldn't afford to get a heroin, uh, you know, habit. You know, it, it takes some pretty good dough to, to get strung out on heroin. Yeah. And so you got to do something to, to pay for that. And, and we were, you know, we weren't even playing shows. So yeah. uh, it, I think that's exaggerated quite a bit. You know, there's no question that especially Iggy would take anything he could find, you know, and uh, it became a much in, in more inexpensive type of drugs uh, later on into the sort of Los Angeles period. But um, yeah, you know, I, I think that's very much exaggerated. Yeah, it's a long time ago and people yeah. make the legend large. Well, that's why I ask, because I, I mean, so, so much about rock and roll is tied up to mythology and legend. And so that's why I thought, well, I'm, t- I'm asking James, let's get it straight from the horse's <laughs> mouth, you know? I'm curious too. Let me ask you a minute. I want to talk about Kill City for a second. one of my favorite Iggy albums overall and that was my understanding is that that was was that meant to be a full Stooges album with Ron and Scotty or was it just going to be you and and Iggy doing your thing doing something new something separate well it was indeterminate at that point the the band had broken up 
and we were trying to get a, another record deal. And so I, my assumption is that had we got a record deal, that we would have, you know, got those guys to come back out and play mm-hmm. on it. But in, in, the, in the way it unfolded, we were just doing demos. And uh, it was very, we were lucky to be able to do them. Uh, it was really because of Ben Edmonds, who was a writer at Cream Magazine, that had some influence with Jimmy Webb, the, the famous composer, who had a studio. And so uh, he let us use it and uh, record those demos. So it was, that's all it was, was demos until Greg Shaw came along and said, wait a minute, you know, why don't you go in the studio and finish those up and, you know, we'll release it. And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of how it happened, but it happened several years after we had recorded it. Right, right. One of my favorite Iggy songs is Johanna, off of that album. Love it, and I, you know, that album's got a lot of saxophone on it, which um, so does uh, Relict, and so does Two to One. That be, I, I wondered, you know, you weren't hearing a lot of scronky, gnarly saxophone in Raw Power, obviously, but by right. then it was when you when you're conceptualizing the songs for Kill City, are you incorporating sax? Are you thinking that's what these songs needed, or were they overdubbed later? What was your thinking? And tell me a story about the creation of Johanna, because I love that song. Well, first off, no, I didn't uh, conceptualize it initially to have sax on it. Luckily, I, I knew a good sax player, you know, so we we uh, we used him, put him on there, and I thought mm-hmm. he did a great job. I mean, he uh, sure did. You know, it, it just uh, it kind of kind of brought some of those songs to life, and and great. you know, so it was it was done uh, after the fact. The song Johanna is just one of those riffs that. Uh, that I came up with and and uh, it it resonated with Iggy and so uh, mm-hmm. Johanna was actually his girlfriend slash drug connection ah got it I wondered so, <laughs> so that was uh, there was that was a real person and I wondered. Uh, great great so great lyric yeah yeah it's so good what do you think would have happened if that album had been able to come out 
at the time. I mean, Raw Power is considered one of the greatest albums of all time. I actually like, like I said, parts of Kill City even better. If you had gotten a deal, you think the Ashtons would have come back? Would the Stooges have just continued for a while longer? You know, it, it's all speculation, but uh, I think I think it's very possible that that could have happened. But you know, it's hard to say. It was just not in the in the cards. So um, it was like I say, it was years later that I even uh, mixed the album and and got it finished up, such as it is. I mean, I in a perfect world there would have been a couple more songs on there and and so on, but. Anyway, we, it is yeah. what it is. I love it. Speaking of which, let's. I want to ask you about new values too. Iggy's 1979 solo album. I believe it's his third. You produce it. Okay. I got. I I saw a quote somewhere of you basically saying, "Fuck David Bowie. He exploited Iggy Pop." I don't know if you still feel that way. And um, Ig, and David had. Uh, produce those first two albums. Do you have like an animosity toward Bowie? Is it, is it, were you trying to do something different when you took over production, producing new values? What's the story there? After Iggy went to Europe with Bowie, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I had to figure out something to do. And my guitar style didn't lend itself to joining another band. Um, and so I, I, uh, I ended up thinking I should be working in a recording studio. So I was, I was working at Paramount's Recorders in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And that's, how, that's what led me to the production and mm -hmm. uh, also led me in, eventually into the electronics world, uh, mm -hmm. the interest there. But anyway, when Iggy came back, I think he, he was over in Europe with Bowie and, and they were hearing the kids were digging on Kill City. And mm -hmm. so um, that helped him to actually get his next recording deal. It wasn't so much the Bowie albums, it was mm -hmm. Kill City. Oh, and, um, and so he decided, well, I better, you know, maybe I could do something with James again. And I was already uh, starting to study to be an electronics engineer. And so um, I had to take time off from that to come and do this record, but it's money. And, and when yeah. you're a student, you, you need that. So yeah, so I, I accepted the production thing. I, I really didn't want to play on the album, although I did play on one song that I had written on the album, um, Don't Look Down. So why be bored? Who scared you? And why stay there? It's no piece of cake. When I hear that crazy sound, I don't look down. In Central Park, the shadow town. I always hear that crazy sound. This morning to the cemetery to see old Lou Valentino. Lipstick traces on his name remain. He never looked down.
Yes, that's the, okay. That's the song I have specific questions for. Anyway, continue. Yeah, so so that that was that. And um, as far as Bowie was concerned, you know, I think uh, I just never really hit it off with Bowie. I, we, I, you know, some people you like, some others you don't. So as a person, I didn't really like David Bowie. I never <laughs> did. As an artist, you know, you got to give him his credit. I mean, he... Sure. He was very successful at it, um, and I think part of his uh, one of the things that Bowie is it was good at, if, it, if good is the right word, was he's an affiliator. So mm -hmm. you know he wants he wants to affiliate with Iggy, he wants to affiliate with Lou Reed, he wants to affiliate with Martha Hoople. That's what he does, or he mm -hmm. did, and mm -hmm. so um, you know you know mm -hmm. Andy Warhol. There's so many. So that was, I guess, where my comment was coming from. Not, okay. not that I, you know, neither here nor there, really. I, I probably yeah. shouldn't have said anything. Why, why bother, you know, but. <laughs> so when you say he's exploiting Iggy, you kind of mean that, did it feel like he was affiliating or like hitching his wagon to someone else's train? Is that sort of what it felt like at the time? Yeah, that's the way yeah. he operates. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that brought him some cred in the, you know, in the, in the punk world. Right. Uh, and so later, later then he did a few efforts, you know, he had Tim Machine and a couple of things like that. Yeah, that was his deal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, you mentioned Don't Look Down because I've always been sort of confused. I don't know if confused is the wrong word, but it felt like when, David was at his commercial peak with Let's Dance, Tonight, Never Let Me Down. He's doing Iggy songs, you know, China Girl and um, Don't Look Down and It just feels like he, I don't know, like what, I wondered, I've, I've never understood why David felt he needed to help Iggy so much all the time like that. So when you were saying that he was exploiting him, I thought, well, even if he exploited him then, he, I think, made up for it later, covering China Girl and stuff so that, you know, Iggy could get a good royalty check out of that, probably. I don't know if it was an altruistic, you know. Uh, um, okay. it, it's hard to say, you know, I, yeah. 
I was happy to get those royalty checks too. <laughs> I bet you were. That's what I was going to say. So Bowie's version of Don't Look Down sounds like this kind of Calypso Island, you know, almost reggae-ish type thing. But yeah. uh, Iggy's is very different than that. What did you think when you heard Bowie's version? And did you did you know ahead of time? Or did, they, did he have to call you and get approval to, you know, do a version of your song? No, um, the, we, we, actually I got Iggy signed to Bug Music, which is, <laughs> is BMG now. And so we both have the same publisher and the publisher of course let me know, but um, I, I've never really turned down anybody from using, you know, recording songs. I haven't had to. And so, um, yeah, yeah, so okay. it's, it's welcome. Interesting. It, was, it was weird, but welcome. It was, it was. <laughs> it, was, it was, but it was, I have a soft spot for that album, and uh, so it's okay with me, even though most Bowie fans hate it. Speaking of Bowie, I, I did want to ask you too, you know, Rob Power has gone through a couple of versions, the original version, which I don't know that I've ever actually heard, because I'm not, I was, I'm not really old enough, and so I don't think I've ever actually heard the Bowie version of Rob Power. I do own and have heard many times Iggy's sort of messier or scuzzier version that came out in the early 2000s. do the um i i i prefer the original i think that's uh to me one of the reasons i do is because it's historical you know and so yeah. the the people have that have grown up on it they they're that's what they listen to it, it's very strange although you know i to be honest i i was in the room when he was mixing it so I should have, if I had something to say about it, I should have said it then. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of times when you're in a studio, you don't hear things that you hear after it, it gets put out. And so none of us liked it when we heard the, the final, you know, 
record. Interesting. Uh, yeah. But um, mostly it was because you couldn't hear any bass or drums. And I, yeah. I, I of course, I now know why that is. And, and that was actually our own fault. The way that, uh, see, this was my first record. And Piggy mm -hmm. was, you know, the de facto producer. We didn't want Bowie producing it. And so we, he wanted to record it like he had re recorded Funhouse. But Don Gallucci was a producer on that, and he was very good. He got good isolation. They, they played it all live, but he got very good isolation. In this case, Iggy insisted on playing the basic tracks all live, but the isolation wasn't that good. And so uh, everything was all bleeding into the drums and, and so on. So ultimately, Bowie couldn't use those tracks loud because you could hear all the previous takes and stuff in the drums and it was a mess. So, you know, he did, he did what he had to do. And I, I, uh, I give him credit for that. I mean, he, he certainly had made a, a number of records at that point. And so he did what he had to do. And he, uh, you know, he basically, the record was gonna come out of print. It, it had been so long. And so Iggy kind of went in to do it in order to put it back out there on the market. So, you, you know, I give him credit for that, but what he did is, you know, typical Iggy is just, you know, faders up, Mr. <laughs> Engineer, and, uh, you know, so that's what you get, right? Yeah, 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 it, um, I, I, I mean, I'm not, like I said, I'm not familiar enough with the earlier version, but the, the version that I have, his remastered version, it, it just feels like everything's a little too fuzzy, a little too scuzzed out, you know? A lot, uh, digital, you, a lot of digital distortion on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was curious where you stood on that. So how did you even, I, I mean, I've read a little bit about, I think you and Ron were in a band, but his first gig was your last or something. But how did, how did you even enter the orbit of the Stooges? How did they, did you see something in Melody Maker and go like a audition or something? What did you do? How did this happen? No, um, well... I had, I had created, uh, formed uh, a band with a guy named Scott Richardson. And Scott ended up in, with some local notoriety um, having formed the Scott Richards case, mm. SRC, which was a de local Detroit band. Anyway, back when I was in The Chosen Few, I had gotten into some trouble and ended up in juvie. And mm. so I wasn't in the band anymore and subsequently ended up going to boarding school in New York. And uh, on one of my vacations back in town, I went with uh, the chosen few guys who now included Ron Ashton to a frat party they were playing. Mm -hmm. And so I saw them there and I had, uh, so I had met Ron and Iggy was there that night as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had my guitar with me as I frequently did, and, and um, I had played some original songs for Iggy, and that, you know, stayed in his mind. I, I, I stayed in touch with those guys after that. I mean, we were all kind of Detroit Ann Arbor guys, very close together, and so uh, I had stayed in touch, and over the years, you know, quite a bit. And it, it was still, you know, I was still in high school at that point, and so it wasn't until after I, graduated high school in 69, I think it was, mm -hmm. that I moved up to Ann Arbor. 
And when I moved up to Ann Arbor, of course, I continued my contacts with, with Ronnie and by now Scotty and some of the uh, roadies and things I knew and, and ultimately ended up in a house that we shared together, the roadies and me, and I think Scotty was in there too. And so I was pretty plugged into the band. And at, at one point, uh, and by that time, they had had lineup changes and they had pulled a couple of the roadies um, in to play instruments, Zeke Zetner playing bass, Bill Cheatham, playing guitar, rhythm guitar. And Bill was a hell of a nice guy, but he wasn't a very good guitar player. And so they decided, probably it was Ziggy that decided to, you know, to slide me over there in rhythm guitar. And so that's how I ended up in the band. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't anything more than, you know, I think I jammed with Ron one day over at, at, at their house. And, you know, that was it. Was there, um, did you feel a sense of competitiveness with Ron? Because I think there, I get the impression there was some animosity. Maybe it was all one-sided. Maybe it was him feeling as if you were sort of coming in, taking his job or, yeah. or over usurping his relationship with Ig. But I mean, wh where did that stand? Were you too competitive? Were you friendly? Could you be friendly? Yeah, I, I always felt that way. I, I think, like you say, it was very one-sided. The the way I've explained it to people is that actually I was the one that saved Ron in the band. The uh, Ig, Ig, Ig wanted to start a new band, just him and I, in in London. So we when we went when we flew over to London together, our first job was to hire a rhythm section of English musicians. The only thing was we couldn't find any that we liked, and so. Ultimately, uh, one night I just said, you know, hey, look, we know Ronnie is a good bass player. He actually was a great bass player. We, that's how I first met him. And uh, he plays as a great rhythm section with his brother, Scott. Mm -hmm. And why don't we just bring them over here and that'll be our rhythm section. And so that made sense to Ig and I. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, and it really, for the longest time, both of them were very, very happy to get the job. And so there was never any animosity that was, that was on the surface at that time. It was mm -hmm. later on where the sour grapes started coming in with Ronnie. And, you know, I, you know, there's nothing I could do about that. He was, yeah. he certainly couldn't, he couldn't have animosity towards Ig because that's what he wanted to do is play with yeah. Ig. And yeah. so, you know, that I was the only target he could come up with. I thought we did really well together, but, uh, you know, I guess yeah. that was something he never got over. That's a shame. You know, it, um, first of all, I mean, the biggest shame of all is that Ron and Scott both died so young. I mean, relatively long, young, yeah. early 60s. And just as things were ramping back up, too. I mean, you know, the that album, The Weirdness, is terrible, but at least it was... <laughs> It's out there and people are paying attention and, um, you know, there's a, there's like a revival. You're, he's, Iggy's selling out, you know, big, big places again. Ron and Scott are there. You're there, hopefully, to participate as, as well. I know you weren't at the time, but it would have been ideal if all of you guys could have come together at that time and done a giant victory lap for the next, like, 20 years, you know? But it, unfortunately, they both 
are gone and they didn't get to take advantage. Exactly. Well, I think that they, they got a, a lot of years in. I That's know true. That they started in the early 2000s and so uh, they had quite a few years and they made okay. some dough. And uh, so, you know, and, and Ronnie got his day in the sun again. True. So all of that is good. Probably we were never going to do a four, uh, two guitar thing again anyway, because my style doesn't leave a lot of air for, yeah. for another guitar. Perfectly and so it's kind of it's kind of uh, difficult to play. play. It's kind of geared around a single guitar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Um, okay, I want to I want to know all about your time in Silicon Valley because I find that fascinating. But before we get there, I uh, threw it out to uh, we have Patreon supporters, and I threw it out to them to if they had any questions to ask you. And I've got a couple. Do you mind if I run some of these down? Sure. Okay. So one of them was about the bootlegs, which I guess are, you know, the Kill City bootlegs or the songs that ultimately became relicked or whatever, being released and re-released on bootlegs over and over and over again. Uh, there's some speculation that I think you were the one who sold them. I don't know if that's even true, but at, during a time when you needed some money, sold the rights to these, you know, demos or whatever, and that's what started it all. What, what's the story there with you know, how did those how did all those songs become so widely distributed, even though they were all just uh, bootlegs? You got me. I mean, there were a couple of bootlegs. Well, there were all of us in the band. You know, in those days, people would just come up to us and give us cassettes of stuff they had recorded. Mm -hmm. And so uh, all, all of the stuff that I had, sure, I, I made it part of the Greg Shaw kind of deal. So he got a whole box of cassettes. And he released a lot of that stuff that way. But that wasn't all me. And, uh, you know, uh, Mark Zermati claims that I sold him uh, metallic KO stuff, but I frankly don't have any recollection of that. Mm. Um, so I don't know where he got that from, but that turned out to be a very popular record yeah. of demos. No, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm not the guy that sold a lot of Ronnie. Anything he had, he'd sell, or anything he had, he'd sell. So um, you got to pay your bills. It came from a lot of a lot of sources. I believe it. Okay, I was curious. And then another question was around uh, working with Main Man and uh, Tony DeFreeze. You touched on that earlier. He seems like a total bulldog, and you know, David obviously couldn't get away from him fast enough. What was your experience like working with Tony DeFries in Main Man? Uh, he, he was, uh, you know, he was a big, larger-than-life character, you know, kind of a, <laughs> he, he kind of patterned his style over Colonel uh, Parker, you know, the uh, Elvis Presley manager, you know, big, big cigar and, and so on. But uh, behind, behind it all, he was screwing all of his audio, uh, his artists, mm -hmm. so he was, Getting, getting all the rights to everything that David Bowie did and everything that Iggy did and, and so on. So he was a very shrewd, you know, sort of lawyer type guy. Yeah, luckily we didn't, weren't around him that long because the whole band was just way too far out there and was not making hit records for him. And so he kind of, first he, he wanted to rid himself of me uh, because uh, there was a, a lot of story, backstory on that, but essentially he thought that might make Iggy more, you know, easy to, to manipulate. Mm. And then when that didn't work out, that lasted for one gig. 
and then the whole band was was out. And mm. so that was that's where Jeff Wall came into the picture. Got it. Okay. Yeah, you hear these stories about Tony DeFreeze and what he was like. I just uh, was curious what your firsthand experience was. Um, okay, let's talk about Silicon Valley because I find this so fascinating. So there's, I mean, you know this, there's not a ton of credits on the James Williamson resume. It's just that what's on there are gigantic. There's Ross, there's, sorry, Raw Power. And then there's, you know, the Kill City stuff and there's producing new values. And then there's not a lot until the last few years. But what I find interesting is this guy who was in a band that was so messed up that they couldn't, mainly because of Iggy, couldn't secure a record deal or whatever, was sober enough or had the, the had a, enough, his faculties together enough to go get a degree and go into technology. That's crazy. It was not easy. Was I believe it. But, but uh, it was actually very, very, um, uh, I guess, gratifying in the sense that I, I got the opportunity to move into something I was fascinated by, you know, got a front row seat in, in, in you know, the PC, the internet, all this stuff that's happened in the meantime. And it was, it was uh, amazing, really. I've never regretted that. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, well, and while everyone, you know, while the, unfortunately for them, while the Ashtons are, you know, trying to scrape a living together and Iggy's kind of still in the doldrums, you're making a big living as a big time tech guy. Tell us exactly what it, what it, you know, I was reading about what it was you were doing and technology makes my brain hurt. So tell, explain to us what you did. You worked for Sony for a while. You moved to Silicon Valley. I don't know if you still live up there. Tell yeah, us exactly what you did. Well, I, I first I got my first job at AMD. I don't know if you know who that is, but it advanced micro devices oh. used to be and still is actually a huge competitor of Intel's. And, uh, and so uh, it was uh, another source of all the Intel processors. But now, I, uh, from what I'm reading, uh, there's, a, there's a gal named uh, Lou, who is actually running the company and, and she's making processors that are better than Intel's. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, it, it has always been a fierce competitive company. It, when I was first uh, working for them, uh, they were making a wide variety of things, not just processors, but they made networking products and graphics products and all kinds of stuff. And so, for a young guy, and I, I was older than a lot of guys graduating, but still young. And uh, for a young engineer, that was like the greatest place you could ever be because I learned a lot about a lot of different things. And I was there quite a number of years and worked my way up as a middle manager and so forth. And uh, then ultimately was hired away to Sony. And uh, at Sony, I went through a variety of different things, but ultimately was asked by the president to form a standards group in the U.S. So, so I was in charge of technical standards, which are, you know, it's confusing to most people because most people think of, well, you know, quality standards. But that's not what I did. I was technical standards, which is, a, is where you work on stuff in organizations 
that with other companies, when you're making products that are maybe five or 10 years out. So it's, it's quite a fascinating area. You know, you, you have to do a lot of different things. So it's not, it's not, it's, you know, committee work, which can be boring, but, you know, reaching consensus requires a lot of diplomacy. And then you have to have the technical skills to understand what the heck is going on in the first mm -hmm. place. So uh, it, it gave me a very good perspective of Sony because I was working with all of the different groups, not just electronics, but pictures, music, um, all the different areas within Sony. And Sony's a very diversified company. So it was uh, fascinating work and um, enjo I enjoyed it greatly. Ultimately though, in 2008 or nine, actually, you know, we were in a recession and you know, Sony wasn't immune to the recession. And so they started asking people if they would take, or they wanted to take um, early retirement packages. I was eligible for it. And so uh, that's kind of how it all got mixed up in this mm -hmm. whole Stooges reunion. I ended up taking the package, but unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but fortunately, they didn't want me to leave. And so they rehired me as a consultant. And so now I had two jobs. I had traveling with the Stooges and I had do, going to these meetings and stuff all over the world. So it was got kind of crazy. It was pretty crazy. But uh, anyway, I was kind of like Spider-Man. I had a day job and a night job. <laughs> I'm just imagining you, because I I work in tech sales. So I'm, I'm in there with you and I used to work in Silicon Valley too. And I'm just imagining you in a boardroom or you know a conference room with all these people and they have no idea that the guy that played guitar on search and destroy is sitting right there you know right there in their midst they have no idea and but it's funny they, go ahead they started to know though i mean after the internet hit people yeah. at first the writers would get my phone number you know back in the day and occasionally i'd get a call and usually i'd decline it but then when the internet hit then it's hard to hide from anybody, you know? So, uh, so then slowly all the, the word got out on all that, uh, yeah. but especially at the end of my career there, they, they all knew, you know, they don't care. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Wow. You know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about this in relation to the Sony job, you know, Iggy's the godfather of punk, obviously. And so, Punk is not just the music, it's a way of life. It's a mindset, you know? And typically, bands that are in punk bands uh, subscribe to that philosophy. But being a corporate, Sony corporate white-collar guy is the furthest thing from, from punk. And I wonder if maybe you don't view yourself as a punk. Maybe you and maybe even the Ashtons to some degree were just musicians that liked sludgy music and this was the way to go. It wasn't a wasn't an ethos necessarily. You no, know what I mean? Well, there, there was no such thing as punk when True. we were playing, and so um, we had no inclination towards that at all. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we kind of personified some of punk, though. Yeah. And so, uh, but we, you know, I, I always, I never thought of myself as punk. I, my, my songs don't sound like punk songs they're mm. they're rock and roll songs and and that's what i like so i you know that was all something that kind of got overlaid on us 
that really wasn't true. You know, they they kind of made this made up this image of us as being the purveyors of punk, and perhaps we we were in a sense that a lot of the punk bands had listened to us, and they uh, like the Pistols, and so they had made some of their style around that. And, and, and I've said frequently that I think they actually helped us become more popularized because those bands, you know, Nirvana, later Guns N' Roses, all those bands adapting that sound actually made it uh, more acceptable for people to listen to us, the old records, because uh, previously they had never heard anything like us and they, and they could, didn't know what to make of it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that helped to, you know, give us more acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. Are you in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the students? Yeah. yeah. I thought you were. That's James, isn't that wild? I mean, you, we're talking, you're in your, where do you live? Uh, in, in Silicon Valley. Like Mountain View or San Jose uh, or something? I live in Saratoga. Saratoga. Okay. So you're there. You, you know, you're this former Sony white collar corporate guy, but you're also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for being one of the most influential guitarists of all time in sitting there in your house in Saratoga. Isn't that wild, the life you've had? It, it is. And, and even on top of that, I'm actually in the Engineering Hall of Fame at my, <laughs> my college. So. Oh, that's great. That is great. Pretty what a life, man. Pretty incredible, really. It is. It is. Okay, I got just a couple more questions. Number one, I didn't know what this was until I got ready to talk to you. You put out a single with a singer named Maya called Sick. And it's a little more, I don't know if poppy is the right word. Maybe that's just Maya's voice. It's not quite as sludgy as all the other stuff that you do. But this song is great. What, who is Maya and what is this, what is this collaboration? Well, she's a, a young person uh, from San Francisco who happened to know my engineer uh, that I was using at the time. And uh, I... You know, he had introduced her, he brought her into the studio and she, you know, played a couple things for me. And I thought, you know, hey, 
I wasn't doing anything. I figured I'd try to, you know, writing a song with her and, and recording it. And uh, she's a, she's talented. I, you know, yeah. as as young people are wont to do, I'm not sure where she's ended up at this point. But she did go to Berkeley School of Music back in Boston and so on. And I think she dropped out of there or something. Mm. Maybe she's back now. I, I, I haven't followed up with her, mm. but... It was fun doing the recording, and she had, you know, she's a very talented young mm -hmm. young person. I love that song. I just wondered what the story was. Um, okay, lastly, uh, I know you said earlier you don't want to talk out of school, and that's totally fine, but you got to tell us some stories. I mean, anything. Any? What are just some of, when you sit back there in Saratoga thinking about chips and looking at your, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing on the wall, what, what are some of the stories that come to mind where you just think you would never believe what happened to me? You know, there's so many things like that because, you know, you put drugs into the mix and, um, and then there's Iggy uh, yeah. himself, which is very un un unpredictable mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, things can happen. I, I guess one of the, one of the more uh, dramatic things we did was uh, in playing at the water, we were staying at the Watergate Hotel, and mm -hmm. we were playing there uh, across the street. And Iggy had some girlfriend. I, I think it might have been Bibi Buell, but I'm not. I, I forget. Anyway, um, they had a whole bunch of THC, and he took that, and so he was like completely out of it. Couldn't even hardly walk, and we were you know, we were trying to revive him so he could do a show and we barely, you know, it took us forever to do it. So we were really late to the gig and the promoter of the gig literally came into the dressing room, took off his Rolex watch and smashed it up against the wall and said, you guys will never play on the East coast again. So we, you know, we pushed Iggy out on the stage and, and, uh, you know, he fell off a few times and everybody thought that was part of the show. You know, that was that. Was that. But, of course, he, the promoter was wrong. We did play on the East Coast quite a bit after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious. I know people don't like to answer the what's your favorite whatever question, but is there a song that we haven't already talked about that you're particularly proud of? Maybe it's on Rob Power, maybe it's on Kill City, whatever it is. Something where you're like, you know what, I always, I loved when I wrote this song or I love this guitar part or whatever. I, this was my favorite thing to play live. What's one of those songs where you just think, I'm particularly proud of this? Well, I, there, I mean, there are so many, but um, I think probably one of, one of them that's dear to my heart is Open Up and Bleed. Especially the version I did with Carolyn Wonderland, who just really killed on that song.
I, uh, I'm, I'm fond of that. Okay. Oh yeah, off of Relict. Yeah. yeah, great. I like that one too. In fact, I was when I was listening back to the album to get ready to talk to you, I'm sort of deciding what's my favorite song here, and that was it until um, Lisa and I got a right popped up, and that one kind of overtook it. But okay. Well, James, um, you're a legend. I love you very much. I am so grateful that you talked with me. And uh, I really love Two to One. And I hope that I've managed to turn some people on to that album and the rest of the stuff you've done that they may not know about because it is so good. No one sounds like James Williamson. Nobody. And uh, that sound is glorious. So thank you for being you. And thank you for thank talking you. with me. Yeah, good to talk to you. There you have it, James Williamson. I hope you heard some stuff in here that you like. I mean, if you, I don't know how you couldn't be a Stooges fan, but if you are and all you know are those three core albums and you heard some stuff in here that you like that you were less familiar with, I'm here to tell you it's great. I like those albums like Relict and uh, the new one, Two to One, and especially Kill City, Acoustic KO. These, I like these albums as much as the core albums. James is just a master at his instrument. It is incredible. So anyway, I want to close it out with one more song on two to one. This is Climate Change. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. I love this one. Uh, okay, next week we are talking to the front man of one of the premier 80s new wave, new romantic, synthy rock bands. Okay? And I don't want to tell you who it is, but I will tell you this person is not an American. And these guys were pretty big. Okay? So it's a great conversation. If you love the 80s, you will want to come back next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man for everything that you do. Thank you, buddy, for being my partner in all of this. Guys, you can find us on uh, Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And by the way, Yan and I are recording our 2020 year in review this weekend and we want to hear from you what your favorite episodes of 2020 were so send us an email send us a tweet whatever let us know what those are because we want to do a tally and then do a countdown of the listener top 10 okay thank you everybody we love you Climate change.